Good evening. Good to see you here on a Wednesday night. Hope you're excited about Ezekiel. This isn't the, the most exciting of the chapters, but it's good in the sense that we're in the final chapter of the judgment against Egypt. You know, we began this back in chapter 29. So here we are four chapters deep into the judgment and lament for Egypt and the judgment and lament for Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So if you would find your way to Ezekiel 32, I'll begin by reading the first two verses out of kind of, then I'll just kind of jump into the, the setting, the context, and kind of give an outline on where we're heading. Ezekiel 32, verse 1. In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you are like a dragon in the seas. You burst forth in your rivers, you trouble the waters with your feet, and foul the rivers. So, Right off the bat, verse 1 here, we're given the setting on when this took place. This takes place, as it says here, in the twelfth year, in the twelfth month. If you were to flip over to chapter 33, just next book over, y'all can count. 33:21. it says there, in the twelfth year, same year, of our exile, in the tenth month, two months prior, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has been struck down. Jerusalem has fallen. So, just months before Ezekiel receives this word from the Lord, just a few months before that, that fugitive arrived and gave them word that Jerusalem had fallen, that the city had fallen. Now, we don't know how long it took for that messenger to get from the, the final destruction of the city to Babylon to relay that message to Ezekiel. We can assume maybe half a year, you know, or something along those lines if you want to assume. But nonetheless, we know chapter 32 takes place after the fall of Jerusalem. That's without question. So the, some questions I had immediately as Ezekiel is fixing to relay this message concerning Pharaoh in Egypt He's been telling them the whole time that Jerusalem was going to fall, and they've been doubting that the whole time. No, 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 no. We're the choice made. You know, this is not going to fall. We have the temple. We have the king. This, this is Jerusalem. But would the people have a renewed sense of urgency? Now that some of Jeremiah, I mean, some of Ezekiel's prophecies have come have been fulfilled, are they going to have a renewed sense of urgency there? Are they now going to be willing to hear? I'm afraid not. If we overlay this with the book of Jeremiah, there's some, some interesting things that are going on at this time. As Jerusalem falls, you know, Nebuchadnezzar sacks Jerusalem, destroys this, you know, just burns the city, destroys it, leaves nobody there but just a, a few of the poorest of the poor, and Jeremiah being one of those. Okay? And what do the people there do? We read this. They, they make up their mind they want to go to Egypt. The very people that they had put all their hope in, they had hoped that Egypt would come and rescue them. And Egypt did show a sign of, you know, strength of, I'm going to come and help you. And so they pull up to help Jerusalem. 
And then Nebuchadnezzar breaks away from his siege of Jerusalem, confronts Egypt. Egypt turns tail, runs back home, then comes back and completely sacks the city. So they saw Egypt come and go. They're not really an ally at all. They're a staff of reed, as Ezekiel has said. They're nothing that can be counted on. They can't support them. But the people still make up their mind they're going to go. But they want the Lord's blessing on it. So they get Jeremiah to say, hey, Jeremiah, if you don't mind, go and pray to the Lord and see what he would have us to do. Whatever he says to do, we'll, we'll do it. You know, a couple of days rock on, 10 days I believe it is. Jeremiah comes back and tells the people, the Lord says, stay here. No. We're not going to do it, Jeremiah. You're lying. And so they march into Egypt, the very place that God told them not to go. He tells them. If you go to Egypt, you will die there. The sword that you think you're dodging here will find you in Egypt. The famine you're dodging here will find you in Egypt. Stay here. Stay here and I will, I will plant you. I will bless you. And it's not that there was something inherently special about the land. It was just the fact that they would be showing faith in God and obedience to His Word and He would bless them for that. But instead... They trust the message of the false prophets again. They deny the truth that Jeremiah is telling them. And instead they embrace the fallacy and strength of Egypt. And they go, being told the whole time they would die there. They're not willing to hear. It's just, it just puzzled me. It's the insanity of this. How hard are their hearts? How, how, how hard of their ears, how stiff is their neck that they're not willing to hear Jeremiah when he's telling them to stay. Don't, don't seek refuge in Egypt. And they go anyway. So here, Ezekiel in Babylon, after the destruction of Jerusalem, is still telling them that, that Egypt's going to fall. Egypt's going to fall. So certain that he's offering a lament here. You'll see the first part of this passage we're going to read is going to be future tense. I will do this. I will do this. This is something that's yet future in Ezekiel's day, but it is certain because the Lord has decreed it. Then he says in verse 2, you, talking about Pharaoh, consider yourself a lion of the nations. So he thought himself a lion. But we see that he was actually a dragon in the seas. He's actually a crocodile, according to chapter 29. So the title of this passage would be A Crocodile with an Identity Crisis. A Crocodile with an Identity Crisis. I, you know, as, as Pharaoh, you can just picture Mama Pharaoh. Or you can be anything you want to be. I want to be a lion, Mama. Well, you can be a lion, son. So you consider yourself a lion king of the jungle, able to just roam. And wherever you roam, people, you know, cower in fear. That's what Pharaoh thought himself to be. The Scripture never refers to Pharaoh as a lion. It refers to Nebuchadnezzar that way. Never Pharaoh. He imagined himself that powerful king, even a god, even a god. And it's, it's ironic that if you look at Egypt today, the Egyptian sphinx, sphinx, if I say it right, it's the, the sphinx, whatever, it's the body of a lion with the face and head of a human. That's exactly the way the pharaohs considered themselves. They considered themselves this lion-like king, 
gods. They had an identity crisis. But God said, you're, you're like a crocodile in the seas. You know, and a crocodile, to be fair, is fierce. You know, they're terrifyingly frightening in their own setting, in their own domain, in the waters. They're not, they're not that much outside their homeland. This is the way it's pictured in 29, so I think that's exactly what Ezekiel's driving at here. <clears throat> but he's mighty, however, their reign... The reign of Pharaoh, his territory is limited. His fierceness is contained to just the waters alone. And it says here that this crocodile, this Pharaoh, troubles the waters with his feet and fouls the rivers. Look, your domain, his land being the waters there, is troubled really because of Pharaoh. You know, and this is right around the time that a coup is being arranged in Egypt. You know, they're going to actually remove Pharaoh Hophra and place another king on the throne. So he's, you see there is some troubled waters in Egypt at this point. And so the, the point maybe is, yeah, you know, you, you're making a big splash. You're making a big scene over there. You're making a grand show of strength. That's all he's doing. I mean, it's not the the casual movements of a crocodile that muddies the water. That's not the point. Pharaoh's over there just causing a scene. He's troubling the people. He's troubling the nations. He's stirring, he's stirring them up. He's making the land really unlivable is what he's doing. This same phrase is actually going to be used two chapters over if you want to flip there. Two chapters over as Ezekiel is going to describe the wicked shepherds which will be there in just a few weeks, and that's actually where the Lord is going to get His good shepherd you know, commentary from. So, Ezekiel 34, verse 18, this is, here we have it here. It says, Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture, and you drink of the clear water, but you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you've trodden with your feet and drink what you've muddied with your feet? So what kind of shepherd doesn't care for a sheep? You know, he's eating the good pasture. He's drinking the clear water and he's stomping down all the... the what's what well, he's not eating and he's just muddying the water for the, those behind him. So what kind of shepherd doesn't care for a sheep? What kind of king or pharaoh here doesn't care for the people that he rules over? That's what's being taught, that this pharaoh is very... Very arrogant. Of course, he considered himself a god. And so he's just stirring up the trouble, making the land unlivable. Considering himself to be a lion. And yet, just a crocodile, fierce in his own right, in his own little domain. Then we move into verse 3. Thus says the Lord God, I will throw my net over you with a host of many peoples, and they will haul you up in my dragnet. I will cast you on the ground, and on an open field I will fling you, and I will cause all the birds of the heaven to settle on you, and I will gorge the beasts of the earth with you. I will stroll your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass. I will drench the land, even to the mountains, with your flowing blood, and the ravines will be full of you. We'll just pause right there. 
We see, if you notice in verse 3, it starts, I will. And this is a phrase in this chapter alone that's used 21 times. 21 times the Lord says, I will. I will. So, now the nations here may be volleying back and forth over power, this power grab here, power. That's just what they did throughout their existence. That's what nations do. Even today, that's what we see. But what they fail to understand is that they're really just like a foosball table, you know, and it's God's the ones who's pulling the levers. God's the one who's sovereign over this thing. The Lord is sovereignly going to restrain them, and He's sovereignly going to put down Pharaoh. And He will accomplish this by the hands of the Babylonians. It says here, I will throw my net over you, and He's doing it with a host of many people. They will haul you up in my dragnet. Just in case you didn't know who the, the many people or the host of many people who, who the Lord is going to use to capture and subdue Pharaoh, the answer is given to us in verse 11. It's going to spell it out down there again. Verse 11 says, For thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon you. We knew that going into it, but it's even spelled out yet one more time in case they thought Egypt would somehow conquer Babylon. Nope. Ain't going to happen. Babylon's going to take you. I'm going to throw my net over you. With their, they're going to be the instruments that I use. And I'll cast you on the ground, on the open field. I will fling you up out of the water, up where you, you feel safe and secure and strong, onto dry land, away from your lair. So this crocodile who thought he was a lion will discover he's no match. No match for the king of the jungle. And no match for the king of kings. Verse 5, you know it read there, that I will strew your flesh, your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass and drench the land, even to the mountains with your flowing blood and the ravines will be full of you. You know, I will cause all the birds of the heaven well, to, to settle on you. Did, that, did I read that verse? Verse 5. No, that's at the end of verse 4. Sorry. End of verse 4. I will cause all the birds of the heaven to settle on you, and I will gorge the heavens, and I will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. So look, this will literally be accomplished in battle. As the people will come out to battle, Pharaoh will come, he will bring his Egyptian army, they will be destroyed, defeated, just slaughtered there in the open fields, and they, they, they won't be buried. They will be left there. The bodies will be left there unburied, which was something that the Egyptians took great care in, mummifying, you know, in burials and all that. They really took a lot of care and consideration of that, but God says they're going to be left dead on the open field, and the birds of the air are going to gorge themselves on them. That's literally what's going to happen. Poetically, what we could read is this is going to be accomplished by the Babylonians. As they come in, they're going to plunder the city, right? They're going to, they're going to pick it apart. They're going to take the spoils. They're going to take anything they want. They're just going to pick it apart like a, like a vulture's doing a carcass. And whatever remains, they're going to burn. So we see the literal fulfillment of this. We see the poetic fulfillment of this because God had already told them that He is going to give them the riches and plunder of Egypt as payment for them laboring for Him. So they're going to come and pick Egypt apart. 
much like them vultures and buzzards would do to a dead carcass. Verses, I'll read 5 through 8 now. I will stroll your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass. I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood, and the ravines will be full of you. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make the stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you, and I will put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. You know, perhaps, just perhaps, <clears throat> that as Ezekiel is describing this, he, he's describing this in literal terms that I think will stir the people of Israel. It should stir their minds and their hearts. It should re recall to them the first, this was what many commentators think, the first plague and the ninth plague of Egypt. The first plague of Egypt was turning the Nile River into blood. And that's likely what we're reading about here when he talks about he will... The blood will, I will stroll your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass and drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood. That this was something that they would have, they would have went back in their minds to the Nile River being turned to blood. And what's the next thing we read that's going to happen? Is I, when I blot you out, I'll cover the heavens. I'll make the stars dark. I'll cover the sun with a cloud. The moon won't give us light. It'll be dark, right? That's what happened in the ninth plague. The darkness fell upon Egypt. Darkness over the land. And actually, if you want to read down in verse 13, we read there, it says, I will destroy all its beasts from beside many waters. Or I will also make its cattle perish. That is the legacy standard. That's the fifth plague. In the fifth plague, according to Exodus 9, all the livestock of the Egyptians died. But not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. So perhaps this, this judgment that's coming upon them is almost like, like round two. This is, the first plague happened. You know, the Nile being turned to blood, and then the ninth plague of the dark, days of darkness, and all the livestock being destroyed. This is just playing out all over again. So then we move on in verses 9 and 10. He says there, I will trouble the hearts of many people when I bring your destruction among the nations into the countries that you've not known. I will make many peoples appalled at you, and the hair of the kings shall bristle with horror because of you. When I brandish my sword before them, they shall tremble every moment, every one for his own life, on the day of your downfall. So just as the Lord had previously done, back when He brought His people out of Egypt the first go-round, He's judging Egypt yet again. And as in the previous case, people are terrified. You know, I think we forget about that often, but you can look in Joshua 2, the story of the spies and Rahab. Rahab says there in Joshua 2 verse 9, For I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon all of us. And all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when He came out of Egypt. They had heard. These people in Jericho had heard what, what the Lord had done for His people. And they melted away in fear. They trembled. It troubled their hearts. You know, an alternate reading to this 
verse 9 where it says, I will trouble the hearts of many people when I bring your destruction among the nations. An alternate reading, and it reads this way in a couple of translations, reads like, I will trouble the hearts of many peoples as I carry you captive among the nations. I'm not saying that's what, that which one's right or wrong. I, I can't read Hebrew, but we do know that they are being carried captive. We were told that back in chapter 29, that he would leave the land desolate. He would carry them captive into Babylon, and after 40 years they would be allowed to return. We do know that is what happened. So the hearts of many people will, will be troubled when they're carried captive. They'll be troubled when destruction comes upon Egypt, you know, countries that they've not known. Then he goes on, he says, I'll make many peoples appalled at you. The hair of the kings will bristle with you. They'll tremble for you. I just thought it was interesting, I guess, how some people, I'm sure in Israel, who heard this, were frightened. Because we know some of the Judean people fled to Egypt. So I'm sure when they heard this, and this actually happened, they were terrified. They had to have been. But then there's some, perhaps Ezekiel, who would have, would have been comforted through this, right? So how can two people... How can two people see the same world event two completely different ways? You know, one is going to be paralyzed by fear. And one is going to find comfort. Not comfort in their downfall, but comfort knowing that God is sovereign over, over everything. That God is sovereignly working out all things according to His purpose, His will on His timeline. And, and none stopping them. Even this little... Alliance that Egypt tried to, to rouse up couldn't stop them. Assyria couldn't stop them. He's just using Babylon now, and he's going to put an end to Babylon at some point. So it just amazes me how some people, even today, will get to this hopefully in the application, but two people can look at the same world event and just have two completely different reactions to it. So let's move on in verse 11 through 16. For thus says the Lord God, The sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon you. I will cause your multitude to fall by the swords of the mighty ones, all of them most ruthless of the nations. They shall bring to ruin the pride of Egypt, and all its multitude shall perish. I will destroy all its beasts from beside many waters, and no foot of man shall trouble them any more nor shall the hooves of beasts trouble them. Then I'll make their waters clear and cause the rivers to run like oil, declares the Lord God, when I make the land of Egypt desolate. And when the land is desolate of all that fills it, when I strike down all who dwell in it, then they will know that I am the Lord. This is a lamentation that shall be chanted. The daughters of the nation shall chant it over Egypt and over all her multitude. They shall chant it, declares the Lord God. <coughs> Excuse me. So Babylon in verse 11 is clearly identified as the instrument that Yahweh, is the instrument that the Lord is going to use to carry out His purpose, to carry out this judgment. And it said He's going to do it here on all its multitude. All its multitude shall perish. I will destroy all its beasts. You see the vastness of this destruction. It'll be evidenced. And, and, and the evidence of this will be the fact that no man, 
no animal will be disturbing the water anymore. So I'll destroy all this beast. And no foot of man shall trouble them, being the waters, or no, no hooves of the beast shall trouble them, and the waters will be clear yet again. The rivers will run like oil. So this is literally going to be fulfilled by the destruction levied by Nebuchadnezzar. You know, as the people are, uh, are destroyed and they're carried captive, those who aren't taken by the sword or killed by the sword, poetically, I think this is going to be fulfilled that Israel, or Egypt, I'm sorry, is no longer going to stir up the nations. Egypt is no more going to, going to be making that splash, that grand display of power that it did up in verse 2. It's not going to be doing that anymore. None of the other nations are going to look to Egypt and cower in fear. None of the other nations are going to lean and trust in Egypt because no one can trust in Egypt. So they're not going to stir the waters anymore. The waters are going to be clear, as it says here. And that's, I think, a literal fulfillment and a poetic fulfillment as well. And then he said, This is lamentation shall be chanted by the daughters of the nations. They'll chant it over Egypt, over her multitude. They shall chant it, declares the Lord God. He puts his signature there at the bottom. Verse 17, we move on. In the twelfth year, this is, you see this is a completely different um, prophecy. We're getting a little bit different time stamp here. The twelfth year, twelfth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. So this is going to be about two weeks from the previous word of the Lord. Not a whole lot of time elapsed, but two weeks from verse 1. Two weeks He's getting another word from the Lord. And then 18 through 32, I'll read it in, in one swipe, and then we'll kind of just pull back and go through it one more time. So, 18 through the rest of the chapter. Son of man, wail over the multitude of Egypt and send them down, her and the daughters of majestic nations, to the world below, to those who have gone down to the pit, whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down and be laid to rest with the uncircumcised. They shall fall amid those who are slain by the sword. Egypt is delivered to the sword. Drag her away in all her multitude. The mighty chiefs shall speak of them with her helpers out of the midst of Sheol. They've come down. They lie still. The uncircumcised slain by the sword. Assyria is there. And all her company, its graves all around it, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, whose graves are set in the uttermost parts of the pit. And her company is all around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who spread terror in the land of the living. Elam is there, and all her multitude around her, around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who went down uncircumcised into the world below, who spread their terror in the land of the living. And they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. They've made her bed among the slain with all her multitude, her graves all around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword. For their terror of them was spread in the land of the living, and they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. They are placed among the slain. Verse 26, Meshach Tubal is there in all her multitude, her graves all around her, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword, for they spread terror in the land of the living, and they do not lie with the mighty. 
the fallen from among the uncircumcised who went down to Sheol with their weapons of war, whose swords were laid under their heads, whose iniquities are upon their bones, for terrors of the mighty men was in the land of the living. Verse 28, But as for you, you shall be broken and lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. Edom is there, her kings and all her princes, who were for all their might are laid with those who are killed by the sword. They lie with the uncircumcised, with those who go down to the pit. The princes of the north are there, all of them, and all the Sidonians, and all who go down in shame with the slain for all their terror that they cause by their might. They lie uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword and bear, the, bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. When Pharaoh sees them, he will be comforted by all his multitude. Pharaoh and all his army, slain by the sword, declares the Lord God. For I spread terror in the land of the living, and he shall be laid to rest among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. Pharaoh and all his multitude, declares the Lord God. It's quite a, quite a passage there. And I think what's being taught, now keep in mind as we read this and as we go through it, this is poetic. This, this isn't intended to be a thorough, detailed description of hell. That's what it's not intended to be. Uh, now, but there are going to be a couple of truths that are implied as we work through this. And the truths are going to be this. That soul sleep is a fallacy. That Scripture nowhere, nowhere teaches of soul sleep. We see here that the souls of these men, the souls of these nations are conscious. They're very aware of what's going on. They're very aware of who's there. Much like the, the rich man. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus, how the rich man, when, he, when his eyes opened, he was in torment. He knew it. He was very aware of where he was. He knew who Lazarus was. He knew he had brothers left behind. So there is no such thing as soul sleep. There's no such thing as annihilation. That will be taught here. Okay, and another thing we need to pick up from this is after death, there's no opportunity to repent. There's no opportunity to repent that side of the grave. Now we know in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 is where we have what some refer to as a hall of faith. Um, it's really those who preceded us in faith, those examples of faith, you know, by faith Abel, by faith Abraham, by faith Moses, and I didn't leave any out intentionally. But here in Ezekiel 32, what we have is those who precede the wicked in judgment. These are all the wicked nations that precede Egypt. They're down there, really like a welcoming committee, waiting on Egypt to come. This is a waiting room for the wicked, as we see here. And so it begins here. Whom did you surpass in verse 19? Who did you surpass in beauty? Who did? Were you more splendid than any of the other nations? Perhaps. But death is the ultimate equalizer. So go in death, is what's being said here, and forever remain among those whom you detested. The Egyptians detested those who were uncircumcised, and there they were going to be forever among those who were uncircumcised. And another phrase, in case you didn't pick up on it, it was repeated over and over and over. It's actually 12 times we read it there where it says, by the sword. These are those who were slain by the sword. 
So these are not those who, were, who died of natural causes. Not that there are not those who died of natural causes in hell at this present moment. The point is that these are those who were judgment from God was levied upon them. These are those who were destroyed by their enemies, who were, you know, it indicated death by their enemies, which God would have been sovereign over. So it says as we move on that, that verse 20, that they shall fall among those who are slain by the sword, delivered to the sword, drag her away in all her multitude. The mighty chiefs shall speak of them with their helpers. Their helpers probably supporting nations. Uh, funny that they're called helpers and they really wasn't much help in time of need. But it seems like there's these mighty chiefs that are down there already and they're, they're, they're speaking to them. Kind of like the rich man did in the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus there. So he's speaking to them here. And, you know, Assyria's there. You know, it's almost like a roll call. Hey, Assyria's down there. All her company. Yep, all of the graves around it. All of them slain. They all fell by the sword. They were judged by God. God used Babylon to do that as well. And then it goes on. Elam is there. It goes on. Meshach Tubal is there. It goes on. Edom is there in verse 29. In verse 30 it goes on. It says the princes of the north are there. All of them. And all the Sidonians are there. So they're all there welcoming Egypt. And it says, oddly enough, at the end of this thing, that Pharaoh will be comforted when he sees them. That's quite a king, isn't it? <laughs> One who, who relishes and is, is tickled when you end up in the same Pit as him. You know, he doesn't want better for you than him. He wants you to suffer the same, same consequences that he did. When Pharaoh sees them, he will be comforted for all his multitude. Pharaoh and all his army slain by the sword. For I, said, I spread terror in the land of the living. And he shall lay laid rest among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. Pharaoh and all his multitude. So I think what's being said throughout all this is Ezekiel's maybe just conjuring up some reminders that all these nations that has been prophesied, to their fall has been prophesied, they fail. That's what that was the last chapter. Assyria, fail. doesn't matter how mighty or how big or how strong you think you are. When God decrees judgment against you, you fall. And they're there waiting on Egypt, and Egypt is, is certain to fall. So, a couple of things as we... Try to pull some application from this. I said earlier, how, do, how does two people see two, the world events and come away with two different, two different conclusions? You know, I'm sure the Ezekiel and those maybe who were, were trusting in the Word of God, maybe even Jeremiah, when they saw the events that happened in Egypt and even in Jerusalem itself, they wasn't necessarily as petrified as those who had put all their, their stock in Egypt. You know, they, they knew... They knew these things would come. So the question, again, remains, how do did, how did two people see world events completely different? You know, are they simply seeing these as the ebbs and flows, the power struggles that just are natural to this world? Or do we see the fact that God of creation is orchestrating these world events to perfection? I'm talking about the precision and perfection of this is just undeniable. And I'm not trying, I don't think we need to read 
uh, the, the headlines from the newspaper and force them into Scripture. I don't, I don't mean that. We're not forcing every headline into the pages of Scripture. But there are some things in Scripture that are prophetically yet future. And we can still be certain that those things are going to occur. And we can anticipate those things with hope. Here's another one. You, you know, we, we mentioned that possibly some of these judgments had a, a tinge, an element to the ten plagues, you know, the days of darkness, the, the, the Nile being turned to blood, or the, the, all the livestock perishing. Well, this is something that they should have known. Egypt should have known this. But again, Egypt is, is notorious for never recording their defeats. They don't, they don't talk about any shortcomings, any, any, any errors, any blunders they make just is, is left off the pages of history and all we tell you about is the good that, that we've done and what we do. I do think it's important that we don't need to have this persona of perfection, you know, to where we can't, we can't admit our failings. You know, we, we can't learn from them. We can't teach others from them. The, the, all the errors we read about in the Scripture were written for our instruction. Scripture tells us that. They wrote about all the shortcomings of the nation of Israel and all the churches and their, their stumbling throughout the, the New Testament were written for our instruction. So we can, we can learn from our mistakes. We can teach others from our mistakes. And that's what we're being taught from the mistakes of others. But Egypt tended to leave those things off because they think it gave them a bad look. After all, they're a god. After all, they're a lion. It just makes me, it just makes you question if they would have remembered or even been taught or even had it written to where it could be read about the exclusivity of the God of Israel. How when the God of Israel stepped in, then that maybe he, he just wiped out all the little G gods of Egypt. He just wiped them out. And they would have known that, that Yahweh is the one true God. I think they realized it at that time, but it's just, it's, would things have been different? Would things have been different? I mean, we can only speculate. And the answer is no, but it just makes you think. So, so why must some of the same lessons be learned again and again and again? We do need to learn from our uh, mistakes. And, you know, uh, one quick thing we've, we've heard, I know Todd's made mention this, people got up in here and they've banged their fists on the pulpit and say things like, uh, you know, I've been preaching for 20 years and I've not changed on one thing, bam, bam, bam. And then, you know, Todd would say, well, that shows he's not learning, right? We're always learning. We don't, we don't have it all right. We're not perfect. We're learning and we're, we shouldn't be ashamed to, to share that growth with others. Also, we don't need to, to look at ourselves as uh, a lion, as so to speak. You know, we're, we need to realize that we're created beings. You know, we, we're, we're given gifts, and our boundaries are set by our Creator. Those are just facts. We're not lions. We can't take what we want when we want. You know, God, we're not, we're not these little mini-gods in our own minds that we like to think we are. You know, we create this little kingdom all around us and we're the God of our little kingdom. We don't need to have a superiority complex and be put in our place by Yahweh who is fully capable of doing that. Don't, we don't need to consider ourselves a lion only to be a crocodile or even much less than that. 
You know, as we read here in the latter part of this about the, the welcoming committee of the wicked, you know, poetically there in, in hell, the wicked that go before us, forming that welcoming committee. And look, the truth is the grave will surely come. And there will be no repentance, no repentance on that side of the grave. The mighty die. The rich die. The poor die. The weak die. Before the believer, death is only the beginning. You know, Paul says to die is gain. Right? So, so that welcoming committee, don't wait for me. Right? Don't wait for me, for I trust in Christ. And I pray you do too. This is, this is what's so great here is we should learn that through reading about Pharaoh and even Nebuchadnezzar and, and everybody on the page of Scripture, they all meet the same end. It's just what, whom did they believe in? If they believed in Christ, then death is, is, is not to be feared. But if you don't, then it should be dreadfully feared because... When it comes, and it will come, you will find yourself welcomed into the arms of all the wicked who's gone before you. And that's a frightening place to be. So if you would please stand.